This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 163. And the quote of the day is from Yogi Berra, who said, It was impossible to get a conversation going. Everyone was talking too much. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 163. Wow. If you're looking to listen to the back catalog, you can check it out at drummersresource.com, also on Stitcher and iTunes. Also, if you're looking for other podcasts, uh, other drumming podcasts, check out some of the other merge features, like the Daniel Glass podcast, who goes into Daniel's unique perspective of his, his musical journey so far, and also Working Drummer podcast who interview these guys, Zach Albetta and Matt Krause, they interview drummers that may not necessarily be household names, but are making a career in the music industry. So that's the Working Drummer Podcast and also the Daniel Glass Podcast. All three, Drummers Resource, Daniel Glass, and the Working Drummer Podcast are under the Merge Network. And yeah, check them out. They're, they're definitely some great, great podcasts and great guys behind them as well. So I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get into this interview with Denny Sywell. And Denny is the founding member of Wings with Paul McCartney. And also has played with The Who, and he has played on a ton of different records, London Symphony Orchestra, Donovan, he's played with Joe Cocker, all sorts of people, and just wrote a book called What Not to Play, and it's a drummer's guide to crafting a drum part. So it's basically, you know, what what to do in the studio, what not to do in the studio, how to craft your drum parts, how to think in terms of a conversation, and how to really serve the music, and not rely on on chops and, and trying to blow everybody out of the water. Hence the quote in the beginning, the Yogi Berra quote, if you want to check that out again, if you didn't hear it. So let's get into it with this really, really great interview with one of the most well-respected drummers in the world, Denny Sywell. Denny, how are you? Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Nick. I feel like we we just did this. <laughs> I think so. This is take two, isn't it? This is take two. We uh, as soon as we started talking, I said hello. He said hello, and it froze. So, so this is uh, this is take two of it. And I I want to get into. Uh, we're going to talk about this. I got this book that was laid on my desk uh, a few weeks ago from you called what not to play and it's a really awesome i've read through the entire thing and i haven't played through the exercises yet but i went through the entire thing and i want to talk all about that uh but before we do that i always like to get the backstory on on my guests and you have a storied career by anyone's standards so uh so just tell the tell the audience a little bit about yourself and you know who you are and and what you do and what you've done well, geez, that could take the whole damn hour. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a kid from Lehighton, Pennsylvania, a little burg out there in Pennsylvania. And, and I had a lot of uh, music growing up. My dad was a drummer. I actually played with a few big bands. Played with Tommy Dorsey at the very beginning. Cause oh, really? They're from Lancer, Pennsylvania. He just played maybe a couple of jobs with them. But, right. but you know, when I was three years old, I heard big bands, and I always loved that. So, And we had a boys' band in our town which was 50 cents, 75 cents a week to get a, a lesson and play in a little con- concert band or marching band. So, mm-hmm. And then high school and band and orchestra and all of that stuff. So my life was always music, music, music. <clears throat> when I got out of, the, uh, out of the high school, I went into the Navy music program and be- played in one of their big bands and met my wife in the south of France when I was stationed over there and uh, started my career in New York. And, when I started my career in New York, I was mainly interested in jazz. So I, I got this gig at the half note with Al Cohn and Zoot Sims and those guys. And pretty soon the recording sessions started coming in and I got to make some records with uh, Astro Gilberto and J.J. Uh, Johnson and Kai Winding and, you know, just a, a whole bunch of great records in those days. And then pretty soon that was an interesting time in music because uh, rock was becoming light rock, should I say, was becoming the, the norm. And they were moving away from swing. So we were doing TV commercials and we were doing all of this stuff and it was like light rock. And I was taking jobs away from my heroes, guys like Mel Lewis and 
Grady Tate and the guys that I really looked up to. And pretty soon I was just a full-blown studio guy. Then I met McCartney. Uh, you play with one Beatle and there goes your jazz career. <laughs> <laughs> You but know, I, I think I would, I think I would, uh, I'd be okay with that, I think. Yeah, I was okay with it, you know. I heard cash register, no, I didn't. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, that was part of it, too, but, uh, you know, you heard about the jazz musician that won the lottery, didn't you? No. They said, what are you going to do with all the money? He says, I don't know, just keep playing till the money runs out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in those days, we were making a good living in the studios, and we were doing records. Every week, you do a record in two or three days. Mm-hmm. You know, James Brown, Billy Joel, uh, there was just a ton of artists that came through. My first was John Denver and, and uh, with Milt Oaken producing. And there were, there were just, I can't remember all of them. There were just so many great records. And it was just a gang of studio guys would show up at the studio and you knock a record out in a couple of days' time. Right. So you had to be sharp and uh, had to know, know what was going on, get the vibe right, mm-hmm. uh, and don't overplay. And, uh, uh, so through that anyway is when I, I met McCartney he he uh, came to town to do the Ram album right. which didn't have a name yet but he wanted to record his I guess that was his second solo record after leaving the Beatles and I'm proud to say that I was the first guy that he uh, he asked to to make music with after leaving the Beatles now did you did you know him before that or no 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 he he did this kind of a uh, a funky audition in a, in a ratty old basement over on the west side of New York. And uh, uh, I just got a call from my answering service that a guy wanted me to do a demo for him. And I was so busy in those days that I didn't have time for demos, but I just had something canceled. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go over and do this demo. And not knowing who was going to be there, I walked into this basement thinking I was going to get mugged. It was really a shady neighborhood. There's Paul and Linda sitting there in a, in a basement, dirt basement floor with a ratty old set of drums. And I said, hey, you're Paul McCartney. He goes, yeah, that's me. I said, what's up? And he said, well, I, I'm going to do a record here in town, and I'm looking at drummers. And uh, apparently he looked at 10 or 12 of the guys that were on the A-list for the studio stuff at the time. And, uh, so who, said, who, were guy, who, who would have been guys, do you think, that he, that he checked out? Well, uh, Purdy says he didn't go down there, but I know he did. Bernard Purdy and Bill right. Award and uh, uh, Donald McDonald. Uh, Herb Lavelle, Ronnie Zito. Uh, let me think. Who else was down there? Jeez, that's all I can come up with right now. What, but what year was that? That would have been 69 or 70. I'm not quite sure of the time frame. But uh, I know that when, when I, you know, I, I said, well, what do you want to hear? And you got a guitar or bass you can play with me? He said, no, just want to hear you play the drums. I went, wow, this is weird. <laughs> And I had like a little tom-tom case. I started doing something unusual in New York. In New York, they usually had house drums in the studios, and they, they sounded like like hitting a dead body, you know. They were right. dead. And uh, uh, so you bring your snare drum cymbals and, uh, and just play the house drums. Well, I was getting so tired of making records like this that I, I started uh, – actually, I had Frank Ippolito – from the pro drum in New York, mm-hmm. call, call Remo and see if he would send me heads. This is like 1969. Send me heads without the white coating on them so they were clear. He says, yeah, I think I can do that. So they sent me some clear heads. And I had clear heads top and bottom on my old Gretsch kit. Just they, weren't tw- making, they weren't making any clear heads at the time? No. <laughs> wow. I said, just leave the frosting off. That's all. <laughs> and... uh and they, they got here, and so they went, instead of going like a dead body, they went, boom. And the engineers hated me because they didn't know how to record it, man. But <laughs> So anyway, I had this little tom-tom case me with a 12 and a 14. And I said, do you mind if I at least stick my toms up on this ratty old set in the basement there? He said, sure, go ahead. And so I set them up, and I said, what do you want to hear? And he said, well, just play some rock and roll time for me, so... I put two and two together pretty quick, so I just went into my Ringo bag, you know, boom, battle, boom, battle, just hammering away on the toms. And uh, he said, play some shuffle, play this, play that. And, uh, you know, so after a while, I think he he saw my my playing and he saw my attitude. We were having fun. You know, we, mm-hmm. we had a, quite a few laughs. 
I left 15 minutes later thinking, I'm never going to get this job. Are you kidding? And then the phone rings three, four days later. He goes, hello, this is Paul. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, what's up, man? <clears throat> he said, well, <clears throat> I'd like to book you for these sessions. I said, oh, just give me a second. Let me, let me look at my book and see if I'm busy. <laughs> And uh, anyway, I said, yeah, I can do it. Yeah, when do you want to start? Would you have taken it no matter what? Of course. <laughs> I would have taken it for free, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I, I wasn't, at the time, I wasn't like a huge Beatle fan that knew every recording and all of that. But I'll never forget hearing the White Album out at Jackie and Roy's house with a guy named Joe Beck, a guitar player friend of mine. We were out there for Thanksgiving, and I just fell in love with the band then because they were so explorative, and there was so much music involved. So, But the rest of the time, I was just so busy making records that I didn't have time to really follow their career. But I knew him sitting in front of me like this that it was going to be something special. And he actually hired three drummers for the Ram album. He wanted me for the first week, uh, Donald McDonald, an incredible drummer who was long gone, uh, for the second week, and Herb Lavelle, uh, a black drummer, one of my favorite drummers of all time, like a Motown kind of guy, he wanted him for the third week. So he hired me for the week, and after the first couple of days, he, he just canceled the other two guys. And We did six weeks of recording at, at uh, Cap, uh, uh, no, 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 Columbia Studios, 52nd Street, New York. We did the tracking dates for the Ram album, and it was just Paul on guitar or piano, uh, me on drums, and either Hugh McCracken or Dave Spinoza. Dave started the sessions. They selected him after they picked me up as a drummer. They got Dave to start. And then something happened where, where, where Paul asked me to recommend another guitar player because I think Dave had some, some uh, problems with his scheduling or something like that. So I, I said, well, I work with this guy, Hugh McCracken, a lot. And Hugh was brought in and up. Uh, and then the three of us finished the, the tracking dates for the Ram. So what's a what's a studio session like with Paul McCartney? I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Well, it was he'd come in in the morning. The, I'll never forget the first day. Well, I I had just this is interesting. I, I bought a set of uh, drums from Frank Ippolito. He called me, pro drum guy. Said, hey, the Museum of Famous People is going out of business, and they had the Ringo set from the Shea Stadium concert night. He said, would you like them? I said, yeah. Are you kidding? I'm not a millionaire. I can't buy something like that. So he said, well, I'm going to the auction. I want the snare drum, but you can have the two toms and the bass drum. So I said, all right, if, you, if I can afford it, sold, man. So he calls me up a couple days later and he says, I got them. It's only going to cost you 300 bucks for the three drums. I said, here you go. <laughs> I show up at the Ram date, the first session, and I put my Beatle drum set in there with the Beatle front head and everything. Nice. So Paul comes in, he goes, hey, man, good to see you. Those are your drums. He looks over at the drum kit and he freaked out that I had the Beatle drum set. <laughs> freaked out in a good way or in a bad way? No, he loved it. He yeah. just, and I had my father's uh, snare drum. It was a, a Leedy Broadway, uh, I don't know, eight or nine inch concerts uh, snare drum. It was beautiful with engraved tubes. So my kit was there, small kit, just, you know, Four-piece kit, a crash, a ride, a pair of hi-hats, and that was it. And he played, the, like a typical day was, he played us the song. He'd come in with the guitar, and uh, we were just sitting there, and it was the first song was Another Day. Mm -hmm. So he started just singing and playing us the song. And he would do that one time, and then maybe another time. We'd make a few notes. Oh, yeah, shit goes to three there. Uh, so count out the bars of the, of the three, four time and stuff like that. And note the section, the verse, chorus, bridge. Just, as a studio musician, you get to learn this stuff really fast because that's what they're paying you to do. Mm -hmm. And then we start doing uh, with rundowns. We would just tr try to find a part that fit each section with Paul, just singing a pilot vocal and playing the guitar or the piano. And uh, we get, you know, half an hour, an hour, sometimes longer, but... We'd find the right parts, and we'd get comfortable with all the things. We'd start doing takes. And we'd start at, we were booked 9 to 6, banker's hours, but sometimes he'd get there at 10, 10.30 even, you know. Right, right. But usually mid-afternoon, we'd have a track done. And then we'd break for lunch, and uh, sometimes we'd come back and he'd say, um, 
Well, I think I'm going to do some overdubs. You guys, you guys can have the rest of the day off. And uh, then we come in. And the first time I heard the first song, I said, "Wow, this is going to be very special." Uh, I think uh, we better do a good job on this. This music's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. So, because now typically, you know, it's the band goes in, records the the tracks. Not typically, but a lot of times. And then, you know, the front man comes in later. And, you know, you, you hear so many stories about guys who cut records and they're like, oh, no, I never even met, you know, whoever yeah. it would be, you know, this guy or that guy. This was totally interactive. Uh, and the beauty of it was he went to the top of the notch players in New York at the time because he didn't want to have to. He wanted somebody that would understand his music and, and play it without asking them to play something. He never told me what to play on any of those tracks on ramp except for one when we did uncle albert i was mm -hmm. i was playing a part that i, I thought would fit the song because uh, it's all about songs you know and um, he said you know that's cool but can you find something especially in the verses that orchestrates the lyric a little more hence i did that thing that you know i talk a lot about it in this book what not to play and in fact that track is in there and i demonstrate the part and so that was the only track he asked me to change what I came up with. So it was the I ideal working situation for us. <laughs> Free brain playing with one of the best guys in the, on the planet. And uh, it was really exciting. And I would imagine one of, one of the, uh, one of my mentors played with Johnny Cash and he was saying that you, you know, you watch somebody like that play on, on TV or you hear him and he's amazing, but seeing it in person is a totally different experience. And I got to imagine it's the same thing with like watching, watching Paul's creative process or being in the studio, you know, recording with all of these musicians. It's got to be just, just to, just to see it actually happen in person. It's got to be an amazing thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I never heard. I never heard him play the bass. Right. Six weeks on the recordings, you know. He played one of the two lead instruments, piano or guitar. And, uh, I, you know, we did a – we never heard a finished track. We just plugged away. We recorded 24 tracks, I think. Wow. Some were used on later, later albums and stuff. Some was used for Rupert the Bear. Uh, but we recorded 24 songs and uh, – we even finished in Los Angeles. We came out here and did, uh, was it Dear Boy? Or, or we did a couple of tracks out here too. He was he was trying to use a producer. He tried to use Jim Garcio from Chicago fame, you know, mm -hmm. and that didn't work out too well. But Paul and I did a couple of tracks out here. Went to the Grammys together. He won the Grammy that year for Let It Be, and uh, you know, it was just an amazing an amazing time. It was so creative and we were used to making, coming up with, with stuff every day on different records and there were artists of note, but Paul McCartney comes along and it's, it's like tenfold. It's really up there. Sure. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your creative process because you've, you've cut so many records and played on so many tracks and you know, a lot, I think a lot of the, a lot of the, I don't want to say confusion, but some of the roadblocks that people have when they're either in the studio or writing tunes or something like that, it's, it's the idea of, okay, what do I play? How do I come up with these drum tracks? How do I, you know, how do I create something that's going to, that's going to, uh, complement the music rather than get in the way of the music and get in the way of the vocal and things like that. So what's your creative process when you're, when you're cutting a new track? Right. Well, the first thing I do is I don't listen for, for a drum part. I listen to the song really carefully because if you listen to the song, the song has a pulse to it, not a beat, but a pulse. You can tell where the beat comes. If you listen careful enough to the song, you say, oh, I can't just go boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. That's not going to work there. Um, so I'll listen for the pulse of the song to kind of shape a drum part around that. And, and, and I always try to find something a little different for the verse, for the bridge, and for the choruses. And, and that part, I try to play that every time so the other musicians can depend on that. And when they hear that coming, you know, they feel comfortable. 
So that, that was uh, when I first started doing studio work. I had the best advice I ever, I ever, I was ever given, and that was the guy said, "When you come into the studio today, leave your chops at the door." Yep. <laughs> and and you got to learn how to just play the song and give the guys what they need. So you know, I just I love good, well written songs and well crafted drum parts and well crafted guitar parts. Every 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 part when. When you're when you're on the mark, man, it's just it's so easy to record like that. Mm -hmm. So the, the one I get a, I get this a lot and and have tried to help people understand this, but I, I would love to hear your take on it. About how are you? How do you express yourself and how do you do things expressively on the kit while leaving your chops at the door? Well, the the vocal when the vocal stops. And, and there's not something else going in there. You know it's a time to make a comment on the drums. That's all I'm doing is I'm making a rhythmic comment on what has just happened. And sometimes that comment will be setting up what's about to happen. So that's just called musicianship. And that's why having the jazz training that I did, the classical training, playing with orchestras and all that stuff really helped because it's all about music. Guys that get into the world of, of music today to just be like one of these great drummers that goes around giving flash clinics, uh, I'm not saying that they're not musicians, but I had a different kind of basic uh, route for my, my expertise on playing drums, and it was much more musical. Do you think that, do you think that that's lost now, or do you think that, that people are still doing no, it's that? No, I don't think it's lost, but uh, there's not as much emphasis put on it. When I was a kid growing up in New York, uh, I mean, when, when we started recording, I knew that if I learned how to play this way, that I'd never be shy of a gig. I wanted to, I wanted to make music that was going to last a long time, and I wanted to get that phone ringing because they, they needed what I was giving them. It wasn't that I could go in and just all this this incredible chop stuff. It was the fact that I understood the song and I played a part that was appropriate for the song. And understanding that is such an intangible though of, you know, understanding what needs to be played, what, you know, what not to play to take, to take it out, to take it out of your book, you know, and how would you, how, how do you exercise that muscle? How do you suggest people exercise that muscle? Um, that's a good question. The the best way is to uh, well you gotta have a band that you play with you know put yourself in a situation where you're playing a new song every day <laughs> that's hard to do these days but you know if you can find out what works and what doesn't work and just use that as your guide um, if you play a part that uh, the band kind of turns around and says wow that's that's kind of cool but doesn't really doesn't fit the the song, and then you have the the open mindedness to go. To, oh, let me try something else. Let me put the backbeat on the end of four rather than you know uh, whatever. You know, come up with some stuff that 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 kind of follows the focus and the accent of the rhythm of the song. And if you get a chance to do that, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. But it does. It takes being in a unique situation. And a lot of times today, my, my students come in and they play with the music that, that the kids are making up. And it's it, because of the what's in style at the moment, it's not as easy to do this as possible. Sure. Um, sure. Hope I've answered that question properly. Yeah, yeah. So ha is there anything that you had to learn during this whole process the hard way? Was there, have you ever gotten, you know, like, kicked off stage or yelled at or reprimanded or, or kicked out of a session or one time, one time. No, this back in the Navy, I was playing in a jazz club. It was all black musicians and me and a trumpet, uh, me and a trumpet player, white, we were in the house band and Lou Donaldson came up. Nice. He was a sax player from Jimmy Smith's band yeah. and his band was there. And, um, another PA guy, Jimmy Smith, not Lou Donaldson. Can we swear on podcast? You can do whatever you want. Okay. Cause I'm going to just, so uh, we're the house band. He's a, a guest. He gets up to play. And, uh, you know, I'm, just, I'm 19. 
20 years old, something like that. I'm just swinging away, playing some. I love that kind of music anyway. Yeah, um, all that organ, the yeah, organ stuff. And like I have an organ trio in a day. But anyway, Jimmy, uh, uh, what's his name? Not Jimmy Smith. <laughs> Lou Donaldson. Lou, Lou gets up to play, and we play the first tune, and he looks out in the audience goes, Hey, Leroy, you out there? Come out here. Come up here and get this white motherfucker off the drums. <laughs> <laughs> so there was my lesson. So first of all, I had to get over the comment, and then Leroy came up, and Leroy went, ka-dang, dang, 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 and just shoved the time up his ass. Second night. I show up for work, and Lou gets up on the stage, and turns around, and he looks at me, and goes, stomp it off, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we were friends after that. You know, nice. had a great run there. It was, and it was a very valuable lesson. Sometimes you don't need to bomb it up a little of all of this stuff. It's come on, lay, lay some time down. Is that, where you, is that where you were doing? Were you overplaying, or were you just not? Sure, I was overplaying. I was I was hearing too much music. I had all this music in me. I was hearing too much and adding too much rather than just man, just sit back and groove. Right. I, so that was a very very valuable lesson. Yeah. I so uh, Johnny D. Francesco. I cut a record with him, Joey's Joey's oh. brother, mm -hmm. and. So and he, I kind of I put all I put the D Francesco sort of in that Jimmy Smith school because they're all from PA, you know, like Jimmy and Joey were close and Johnny and Pop and all those guys. Right. So we were playing a gig one night and and Johnny turns around, he's like, "I've been supporting you all." It was my band, it was the Nick Ruffini Trio, and he goes, "I've been supporting you all night. How come every time I go to play a solo, you play like fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> And that was like it was sort of the beginning of of my uh, my schooling through those guys. But those hard lessons, and you know, not to not to um, you know turn turn the tables to me, but but just to to echo your point, like those yeah. hard lessons are. I think everybody needs those every once in a while to just sort of like, hey man, what, what, you're not here for you, you're here for us. You know, we're here for we're all here for us. And, you know, that's very true. And years later, now I've been doing it 30-some 30, 30 years. I was working for a guy out here, Don Pystrup, who does a lot of big commercials, jingles. Mm -hmm. And um, I show up one day, and there's like a CBS sports theme. And I get the chart. You know, the, the band is Jerry Hay and all of these best musicians in, in L.A., all of the A-cats. And I'm on drums. And so I see this chart is really complicated. It's got a lot of pushes and accents, dotted, you know. So I played the chart the first time. Now, this is me 30 years into the studio experience, and, and I'm playing the chart as I see it written. And uh, it was way too busy, way too busy. Jerry Hay comes over to me. He says, don't play the fucking chart, man. Just swing. <laughs> <laughs> I went, yeah, you're right. And the, then everybody was really happy when I just gave them a chance to play all of that, the pushes and all of that stuff. Right. And I stayed out of the way of it. So, you know, you, you never stop learning. If you stop learning, you might as well just quit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think as, as, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think as you get older, it's it starts to get a little bit easier to play less and to really... I think it's just a maturity thing because I think when you're young, I know I was, uh, I mean, I'm still this way, but, uh, just like playing all these notes and it's like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta play this stuff because people need to know that I'm good and I need to show them all this stuff. And that's, that's, that's an ordinary way of thinking. I mean, sure. You're trying to make your bones. You're trying to get in. And so you, you got to impress them with something, but, uh, over-impressing, you know, it's like that, that joke about the guy who can play, can you play seven on the hi-hat and four on this and five on that? And he said, yeah, we said, well, we don't want you in the band then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did I get the gig? No, that's why we fired the last guy. <laughs> so now you're you're in L.A. now. I know that you were in New York for – how long were you in New York and then what prompted the move to L.A.? Only maybe four years or so. Oh, okay. I got there around 67. When I started playing with uh, with Alan Zuda to Half Note, and then I left the '71. I moved to August. I think it was August of '71. We moved to England to start start form Wings. And then how long? So how long were you in England before you moved to LA? Uh, when I left, the band was uh, I think it was August of '74. 
73, 74, something like that. It's only in the band two or three years. Okay. And the reason why I ask about the move is because I get a lot of people asking about relocating to different areas. And so I always like to know what prompted the move to a different city. Granted, the landscape of L.A. was different in the 70s than it is now. Um, Yeah. Well, I moved to L.A. for one reason only. I didn't want to come back to New York and go into the rat race again because there truly were 18-hour days. And and I loved it, but it was hard. It was was a hard way of life. it was rewarding but hard, and I, I always wanted to. I played with a few large orchestras in New York where we're doing movie soundtracks, and I always wanted to get out here to LA and uh, and be part of that world. It's like the cream of the crop of of players. These guys are symphonic players, uh, great jazz players. They play anything and everything, and I thought. Uh, with my reputation and everything, that I'd come out here and just fall right into place again. And it, it wasn't so. They thought I was an English rock and roll drummer, and uh, I had to make my way to, into L.A.'s uh, music scene, and it, it was kind of painful to tell you the truth. Yeah. I never really caught on like, like I did in New York. <clears throat> there were so many great players out here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, younger guys, you know, you get Peter Erskine and Vinnie Cayuta, and uh, you know, there's a slew of those guys. Uh, the, the, when you're the new kid in town, even though you played with a Beatle, it, it's, it's different. It's different out here. Sure. That makes sense. Eventually I did get, and for the last, oh, uh, I haven't, I kind of stopped doing it, but I, I used to do a lot of film scores. So James Newton Howard was my main guy and I worked for a couple composers, but I love playing in the section with Joe Piccaro and Emil Richards and Larry Bunker and Bob Zimidian. All of these, Mike Fisher, all of these incredible percussionists, and just being one of the seven or eight percussionists on big, big films is—it's just so rewarding because I get to use all my classical training, all my musical abilities, and all of my te- technical expertise to play what I have to play. Mm-hmm. Thank God I was a good reader because you, you know you screw up once on one of those 110-piece orchestra sessions. They look at you funny. You screw up twice. They really look at you funny. You screw up three times. You're out. Yep. You don't work again. And there's a lot of money being spent in those sessions. You're damn right. You know. So there's no doubt that all of you know I love DW drums and I've been playing them for years. And I mentioned on the last podcast, do yourself a favor. If you're out in the L.A. area or just, I mean, even if you're not, take a trip to Oxnard. It's about 45 minutes north of of L.A. And go in and tour the factory. It's amazing. They have a proprietary way that they make all their shells and everything. And th- just watching how they make these drums is amazing. Not only that, you can interact with the people there, and you'll realize that it's such just a really close-knit family over there at DW. So do yourself a favor, go check them out in Oxnard or check them out at dwdrums.com. But like you, you got to get the full experience if you go there. So do yourself a favor, go to Oxnard and take a tour. It's, uh, I don't know if it's free or not. I think it's free. Anyway, go check it out. And uh, you can visit them at dwdrums.com. Well worth the visit, I promise you. This session is also brought to you by Sabian and their new XSR symbol. So I could tell you all about their award-winning technology and their B12 bronze and all of that stuff. That doesn't mean anything to me, and I don't know what it means to you. But here's something that you need to know, that these are super high-quality, professional-grade symbols at a price that you can afford. And at the end of the day, what else do you need to know? For more info, head over to sabian.com forward slash XSR. How would you gauge the the landscape of the of the LA scene now? I think it's pretty healthy. There's a there's an undercurrent of uh, of young musicians out here that's good. There's there's not too much of a jazz scene as there used to be, uh, but there's a healthy jazz scene out here as well. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, I know that the work isn't plentiful like it used to be. There was there was a lot of demos being recorded and. And a lot of albums being made and stuff today. It's and a lot of TV shows too, which was a main staple for a lot of the studio guys. And and today, a lot of that stuff, 
most of it, as a matter of fact, is done uh, some guy in his garage with a computer. And so the, the, the work isn't as plentiful as it used to be. And uh, I'm glad I'm not starting uh, in the business right now because it's, right. it's a tough time. You, you have to find a way to make it. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. If I were, you know, 21, 22 years old and I was moving to L.A., what would you suggest I do, or a listener, you know, if they're 21, 22, contemplating, oh, maybe I'll move to L.A. or, you know, somewhere, some it's other city. Same, it's the same thing in, in any city you move to. Well, the first thing you have to do is integrate, you know, have to go hang out in the clubs, meet all the cats, look for an opportunity to sit in, uh, keep meeting, you know, for drummers, meet a bass player that's that gets calls. And when he gets calls, he says, oh, my regular drummer can't make it. Can you recommend somebody? And then you get in. That's that's how everybody starts in this business. And and in those days in New York, uh, it was bass player, drummer, bass player, drummer. You know, if the drummer got the call, recommend a bass player, or you know. So once you find a couple of cats that you really like playing with, that's how it worked. With me, it was Chuck DeMonico, the late Chuck DeMonico. We were the same age. We were in a band together many years ago with Joe Beck and Tom Scott and Roger Kellaway. We had a rock band here in L.A. Uh, in 1967 or 68, it was only a couple of months old, but it was an amazing band. We were playing stuff 30 years ahead of its time, and all tremendous musicians. And Chuck Duranico, he was in the studio world, and he would tell the composers and the contractors that you have to know the contractors. He'd say, you got to get Denny on your list. He's a real musician. And if it wasn't for Chuck, I never would have got... I never would have caught on at all in L.A. Hmm. God bless that guy. But, uh, you know, you really have to just go to the clubs where the successful guys are, are playing when they're not doing their recording work. Get to meet these guys. Get a chance to sit in. Uh, it takes a lot of work. The uh, And thank God social media doesn't do it. People don't send out. Uh, a bio with, this is what I've done. Here's a sample of my playing. Hire me. That shit don't work. <laughs> yeah, that never works, man. So it's really, uh, it's really hard to uh, figure out what to do next. But the idea is to just become one of the guys, and until they get sick of seeing you, and they say, "Let's see what this guy sounds like," and they call you in on a rehearsal or something. Sure, sure. Maybe if I let him sit in, he'll stop bothering me. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I agree. So. I want to talk about this book. Uh, it's called What Not to Play, A Drummer's Guide to Crafting a Drum Part, and that you have done many times over. Uh, so talk a little bit about sort of the inspiration behind the book and, and why you decided to write it. Well, and, just, and just before you go into this, I, the, the listeners know, but I want to let you know as well. I, don't, I never bring people on to, quote unquote, promote their products, right? But right. when I see something that I think that the audience can benefit from, I like to talk to the person who created it because – just because I know that it, it adds value to the listeners. So I got this book and I was like, man, these people need to know about this book. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you about it. So um, just to put – I just want to let you know the listeners and you know that this isn't like – next week there's not going to be somebody else on here talking about their, about their, about their thing. So I really, I really like this book and – but I want to – let you talk about it and, and the inspiration behind it. Well, it, I always, in the back of my mind, I thought, geez, you know, I've had a pretty nice career and I've learned a lot of stuff over the years and it would be nice to pass it on because I'm in my 70s now. <laughs> so, you know, who knows how long it's going to be uh, happening for me anymore, although it still is, hallelujah. But there, there's a guy named Dave Black. Dave is a, an author himself. Mm -hmm. I had Dave on, on the podcast, actually. Great. Well, he's a... Uh, He's a friend and an author and a VP of something over there at Alfred Publishing. And he asked me, he said, did you ever write a book? And I said, no, I've always had it in mind to do so. Because uh, he said, well, we'd, we'd love for you to write kind of a legacy item about your career and see if you could uh, come up with. Some. I said, geez, that's that's so easy. It's dead easy for me to do that. And I would love the opportunity to do it. So I sat down and I started you know, and Dave really helped me. He was my editor on everything. I'd send everything over to him, and we'd look at it. And uh, he loved everything that was coming along. And then, then we had all of these. I really initially wanted. I had saved studio tracks 
that I've done over the years uh, where we can have the track with the original chart, the click track, and me playing drums on it, and also the track without drums for a, a student play along. And we ran into a lot of licensing problems with these because the union, first of all, we couldn't, we couldn't use some of the tracks. We couldn't get licensing agreements for them. And the union also said that we would have to pay every, and these some are big band-aids. Uh, the union said we'd have to pay everybody on the session a reuse fee. And that was just, we, we couldn't really afford that. Now, if, if I got all the reused fees that I have coming, uh, I'd really like if the union went to work for me on that, you know, but they, this is one way, you know. Right. But anyway, that was the hardest part of the book. Uh, I came up with this uh, this concept that I, in my teaching, one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one, it's just remembering strokes that have that many strokes in them. And what it does is allow the student to use all of the strokes necessary that are within the 26 rudiments. And it's a real simple, um, it's a simple way of warming up. Uh, anybody from a brand new drummer to an experienced drummer can use this. And uh, all of a sudden your hands are awake and flying and it balances out your non-dominant hand, your left or your right hand, whatever, if you're a lefty or a righty. So it, it, it was just a, an accident that I came upon this while teaching. And I thought this was valuable. And Peter Erskine saw it the first time it came out. I believe it was on in the edge. And he thought, wow, that, that's really a beautiful concept. And so everybody that saw it liked it. And I, I saw it work in many of my students. So I included that. And then uh, McCartney, when we we're going to use some tracks, I thought, you know, Uncle Albert would definitely be one of those. I called Paul up and he said, yeah, absolutely. You can have anything you want. He just about gave it to us the licensing fees for this because I was on these tracks and because we're great friends, you know, they were, they, they weren't even worth what the administrative paperwork is. You know, I paid so little money for this stuff. It was ridiculous. I can't tell you how cheap it was. That's amazing though. That, yeah. I mean, of, 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 you know, Paul to do that. And, and, you know, uncle Albert being one of the tracks, uh, I think, uh, let me open my book. I don't know. There was a, well, one of the tracks that I really liked a lot was uh, When the Night. Uh, I don't know if you heard the DVD in the back yet. I didn't. I didn't. Oh, you got to check that out. That's the most fun. It was shot up at Drum Channel, and Don Lombardi and his crew up at Drum Channel shot that for me. And I play along to all of these tracks. So I demonstrate the part. Uh, and then again, <laughs> hate to get into this, but... I had a version of it where I demonstrated the part on its own and then played along that part to the track. Well, we had to have a separate print license to use the demonstration part. Jeez. It just became such a nightmare that a, a six-month process took two and a half years at right. least. Well, and I think it's important for people to understand this too, that you know there's – if you're using tracks that other people recorded on or that, you know, things like that, there's licensing fees that go along with that. And there's, there's royalties that have to be paid out and, and, and all of these things. So, you know, it's, it's an important lesson for the, for the listener as well, that it's not just a matter of just writing the book and, and just putting it out. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of legal stuff in, on, in the background that happens as well. And each track I, that uh, is in the, in the book on the, on the DVD, uh, I write a little piece prior to it. Uh, what it was like in the studio, what, 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 what happened, what, what made that track happen that day. And then there's the arrangement, the, the drum part, some of which didn't exist. In fact, none, none of the drum parts ever existed with McCartney. We didn't have any music there. Sure. It was all, all done by ear. But some of the studio stuff that's handed to you, so the student gets to see what one of those drum parts looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's usually not a drum part. It's just a, a guide to, um, you know, two, four bar here and there, a push, a dot, a tie, whatever. Uh, so it's really, a, it gives every level of student uh, a good look at, at some interesting stuff. So why the title, What Not to Play? Well, because everybody knows what to play, but it's, <laughs> you know, you can come up with what, what it's going to be, but it's knowing what not to play that's going to keep you getting called back. Right. 
Right. If you learn how to craft a drum part, but guys that are going to go in there like that, the old joke, seven on this and five on that, you know, you know you're not going to get the gig again. You're not going to get the call back. So it's not about you making your bones. It's about you doing the job. Sure. And th- I mean, and this book is, I mean, if you look at the back of the book, it's recommended by Ringo Starr, Jim Keltner, Matt Sorum, Joe Picaro, Greg Bissonette, and Abe Laboreal Jr. So there's some... Yeah, I couldn't get anybody good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the foreword is written by Paul McCartney. So definitely, yeah. uh, definitely, I suggest that everybody checks it out. And plus, we're also going to give away a, we're gonna, somebody can enter to win a copy of, so you, we said the book... And what else were you saying, Denny? What else? I'll you- throw a band picture in there, a signed band picture, and uh, some of my drumsticks, and uh, maybe one of my my uh, trio CDs. Cool. So it can be found on my website, by the way, DennySidewell.com. Okay. Yeah, well, I was going to uh, let everybody know too. I'll I'll put all the links to everything uh, in the show notes. People can check all that out. All the links to you, where they can get the book and all that stuff. Uh, so if you're interested in entering to win, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash Denny, D-E-N-N-Y. So it'll be a book, uh, a set of sticks, a signed, uh, signed picture of the band and a copy of his trio CD. So reckless abandoned, reckless abandoned. I love this. It's a, it's an Oregon trio back to the Oregon trio again. And two, two of the most incredible musicians I've ever worked with Joe bag on Oregon and John Cudini on guitar. And we actually did, I don't know, four or five or six McCartney songs and just revamped them for the jazz idiom. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, this, the, the Beatle fans, when I, I made it, uh, I took it along to some of these Beatle events that I do, and they just, uh, they said, no, we don't like jazz, we like Beatles. And then they, a lot of them bought it, and they loved it. You know, So it's, it's really cool. It's not... Not that blow your head off kind of jazz either. It's and it's not sleepy old time jazz. I really uh, think this is one of the best things I've ever come upon. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's sensational. What is it? Just like like groove jazz kind of stuff. Well, it's groove. It's Brazilian. It's uh, it's great songs, but just great performances from everybody. And and I get to solo a lot, which is not my thing. But I play a whole lot. The guys talk me into playing a whole lot more soloing than than I'm accustomed to, and I'm pretty proud of everything that's on that record. Nice. And it was recorded here in my home studio. Wow, that's power of technology is amazing. Yeah, you know, I mean, look at we're talking halfway across the you know or across the country from each other, so. So now what, so what's the stuff that you're working on now? Because I always, you know, I want to know one what you're working on now and and what you have planned for the future as well. Well, uh, I just did a gig Saturday night with this new band. It's our third third night together. It's called Route 66. But there's been a whole bunch of bands called that. So they changed the spelling from Route to R-O-O-T, 66. I don't know why. But it's a great friend of mine, Richard uh, Gerstein. They call him T-Bearer. It's got uh, piano, bass, guitar, drums, and an organ player, Uh Two horns, Joe Sublet, the tenor player, and uh, Mark Tender from the Conan O'Brien band on trumpet. And uh, John Woodhead's a guitar player, Paul L's a bass player, a guy named Maxwell, I forget his last name, on, on organ. And we have two girl singers at the moment. And uh, we do a bunch of the Joe Cocker, Leon Russell, Bob Dylan, uh, New Orleans kind of stuff. And it's just all the tunes that you love and you know, and uh, it's funky. And it's we played three gigs so far, and every show has been sold out. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it's a great sign, and it's so much fun. These guys are all they're all seasoned vets like me, and when we get together, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen. I know Mark. I don't know Mark personally, but I've uh, I've seen him play. Uh, my buddy James is is the drummer for Conan, but. Uh, but Mark also played on my friend Daniel Glass's CD too. Oh yeah, sure. So I mean, yeah, Mark. Every I everywhere I turn, Mark is somewhere playing on. Something. Hey, I, I just met him, and I, I really appreciate his knowing him. And, and man, what a great player! Yeah, yeah. I've, I like I said, I don't know him personally. I've never met him, but I know that he's a he's a hell of a player. So he's got a French wife too. We have so much in common already. Oh really? Oh, do you? Oh, your French? Your wife is French? I knew that you met in the south of France, but. 
Yeah, she's from Nice, and his wife's from Paris. And yeah, this year we're together fifty years. Wow! Thanks. In drummer's years, that's a hundred and fifty. Yeah. Years. <laughs> well, congratulations to that. Thanks, man. I just I haven't even been married a year yet, so. Yeah. So I gotta, you know, actually May is my my one year anniversary. So. Good for you, man. <laughs> I got forty nine to go. There you go. <laughs> well, Denny, uh, thank you, you know, so much for for taking all the time to chat with me today. I I really do appreciate it. I love I love your work. I've been a fan of your work for years, so it's great to sit here and talk to you. I'm a fan of this new book too. I encourage everyone to to go out and pick it up. If you're interested in trying to win uh, the prizes, go to drummersresource.com forward slash Denny D E N N Y. And if people want to get in touch with you or interact with you or, you know, find out more about you, where's the best place to do that? My website is com. Now, make sure you spell it S-E-I-W-E-L-L, not S-I-E. So S-E-I-W-E-L-L. And uh, the CDs and the book and all of that stuff is on the website. And there's some... There's some uh, all kinds of stuff on the website, which uh, I'm really happy this it was built years ago. And I just I never really upgraded it much. But uh, it's really exciting to have something like this and to stay in, in touch with the fans. And then they can always reach me on Facebook, too. Uh, although I understand that we're uh, we're out of uh, I don't I, I I can't accept any more. Oh, any more friends. You have to add you have to create a page so that people can just like the page. I did. It's just called the Denny Sywell page, but just a page for the trio, a page for that. And there's three pages up there. If you can't get one of those, I mean, I don't know. But I, I look at Facebook as, as as much as I can, you know. Right. Cool. Well, I encourage everybody to do that and get in touch with, with Denny. And if you're in the L.A. area, definitely go out and see him. And uh, Denny, again, thank you, man, so much. It's been, it's been well, a pleasure, you. honor to have you. Thank you. I mean, it's really – I really uh, – I love the opportunity to talk about this book, though, because it, it really did, does have 40, 50 years of, uh, of practical experience wrapped up in it. And the one thing that I really want to do to the drumming world is to pass on what I've learned. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate you being, being a part of it. I appreciate what you do and what you've done. So, again, a pleasure to have you and uh, looking forward to hopefully meeting in person soon. All right, Nick. I All can't right. wait. Call me when you're out here. I'll, I'll send you send me on phone information next time we chat. All right, cool. Sounds sounds like a deal. Denny, thanks again. I appreciate it. My pleasure. See you soon, See you. huh? Bye. So there you have it, Denny Sywell. And if you're interested in trying to win that giveaway with the picture and the sticks and the, the book and everything, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash Denny, D-E-N-N-Y, and you'll automatically be entered to win. Also, check out the other podcasts on the Merge Network, the Working Drummer Podcast and the Daniel Glass Podcast. And until the next podcast, that's a lot of podcasts in a row. But until the next one, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking. Oh, wait. Have you left a review yet? If you haven't, head over to iTunes and leave a review for the podcast. I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, it helps the podcast show up higher in the search results, which means more people hear about the podcast, which means more people join the Drummer's Resource community. All right. I'm going to let you go. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.